I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Shinwa Achebe's Things Fall Apart. We're answering your questions on Things Fall Apart. Uh, Sean was with us for the, the previous episodes on this book, but he is uh, en route to uh, some holiday travel. Today is Wednesday, December 27th when we we're recording this, and he's he's um, he's traveling. Tim, are you, are you still dealing with the sickness because you just muted yourself because you had a coughing fit. So I just want to yeah. check in on you real quick. Still coughing, still a little bit congested. Tim, still... I'm worried about you. I know. I took antibiotics and everything. I went through the whole cycle of antibiotics. I don't know what it is. is it, yeah, but it, it's not COVID? You should ask Dr. House. I've been tested twice for COVID and the flu. That's why oh. I've come up with subterranean Chernobyl sewer virus. I feel like there's a big gap. Like there's a continuum between the two things that we automatically think of and the Chernobyl sewage sewer virus. You mean if it's not... There's a whole gamut. It could be, I don't know. Of various viruses and illnesses. Yeah, there's a lot more options. Like could be a brain-eating amoeba. It could be polio. Tuberculosis. Polio, I definitely didn't. Smallpox. Yeah, it could be any what of those is, What did you say, Heidi? I've been watching House. And so, what was it that he, that you... Leishmaniasis. Wow. What is that? I've yeah. thought about House in a long time. I know. I know. I really liked that show and I was just thinking about it the other day. And so I started watching it. Is so it now leash? I know like what you so walk a dog or is it illnesses. leash? Like- it's leishmaniasis. It's indigenous. It's almost always only found in Southeast Asia. Okay. I've made no okay. recent trip, so I'm going to cross that one off my list. All right. It's probably polio I mean, then. Yeah. Polio. I, smallpox has, in theory, been eradicated, but it only takes one person to it bring it back. It only takes one. That's right. To get a fire going. I'm just going to let this go as yeah, long that's as it how it is with polio. <laughs> Once you've experienced it. Save me, David. No. Go on. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you made that bad. Okay. So uh, anyway, we're here to answer your questions. Um, it, it's two days after Christmas, though. Um, Heidi's on vacation. Heidi, how's your vacation going? It's you want to? So great. The big event of my day was that I saw a hold on a bird <laughs> whose name I will find very shortly. Who's endemic <laughs> to the Yucatan you flipping, Peninsula? Are you flipping through like a book that they gave you in the? Like the resort or the hotel or Airbnb or whatever. It's, it's got all the information on local flora and fauna and it's called Bird Birds Life of Mayakoba. Well, there you and go. I okay. And you saw one. Reading this book all day and learning about the various <laughs> birds. And so you got a new book to add to our twenty twenty three list. I thought was a night heron, but it turned out to be She's just flipping pages. Do you want to keep singing? Limpkin. Oh, it's a limpkin. limpkin. No, kidding. That sounds like maybe it also is a disease that Tim has. At Mayakobar, often the first time even experienced birders encounter one of these unusual birds. So, I am very lucky. What's more rare, polio in America in adults or this bird? A sighting of the limpkin. I think it's rare. Well, since Tim has thirty percent of us have polio right That's now. That's true, right? Yeah, I know, it's true. I know. The math just checks out, and yeah. you know, only thirty-three percent of us have seen this bird today. 
That's right. And David Hudson so. is very wounded. He cut himself. Yeah. With yeah. A What's going knife. on, David? I I I cut myself. I don't really know what else to say. It's not that cool. I wish I had like it's I got super in a street, cool. I got a a street fight. It was a shark attack, yeah. is what I heard. Is what I heard. Yeah. yeah and they mom. say they're yeah. rare. Yeah, I know, right? Please. I had one in my kitchen. Yeah. Wow. Apparently I mean, less rare than the a chances. sighting of the Limpkin. Once <laughs> you've experienced it. <laughs> hey, Logan, can you go ahead and just grab that as a sound effect that we can use whenever we need it, it into perpetuity? Um, yeah, I just cut myself pretty good and uh, it bled for three and a half hours. It seemed dire, the only though. Way, yeah. The only way... Well, you were texting with my mom, so, you know. Um, uh, were you looking ghostly? I was no, I think I was him. fine. I kept, I kept texting her, like, is David done bleeding yet? She's like, nope, still going. <laughs> like, I'm going to say my the goodbyes. Only way, yeah, seriously, the only way that I could get it to stop bleeding was to use bleed stop powder, which they use in ERs, apparently. My ER nurse friend said that. So yeah, I just put my, after I couldn't get it to stop with all the tricks and, uh, you know, things that I could figure out, uh, including clamping my hand or my right hand around it so long to staunch the bleeding that my right hand went to sleep. What? Um, yeah. It, it was a long time. I mean, it was, this, it was, and by bleeding, I mean, it was really bleeding as my, I learned, I learned uh, that the finger is, especially the end of your index finger, very vascular. So that just kind of, you know, it just bleeds. Yeah. Yeah. So uh bled a lot. And then I poured this powder on it and I watched my bleed, my blood clot before my very eyes. Cool. Yeah, it was awesome. And then I wrapped it up and then did that for about 24 hours. And about an hour ago, I just pulled off the wrap and put a new one on to kind of clean it. And I just pulled off like a bunch of dried blood. So um, that's yeah, cool. It was great. We were celebrating Christmas. With the pairing knife. Once I didn't realize you've experienced it. This is such a good so episode. Tim was uh, Tim was really into musical theater once upon a time, <laughs> and uh, some, you know, once into musical theater, always into musical theater, or something that I've learned about people in the world. Um, let's answer some questions. Speaking of people in the world, we are um, here to answer our listeners' questions about things fall apart, and we don't have a like a massive amount of time, so we're just going to pivot quickly into it. I want to start with this one. Here's one from Ashley, and Heidi, I'll start with you on this. She says. As someone who has primarily read from the Western literature canon, I struggled to read this novel since it didn't follow a lot of the tropes or cliches that I have come to expect. So, do you have any advice for learning to read books from other cultures uh, slash recommendations for other books to try? Mm. I think this is a great question. It's a really good question. I think, I mean, one, reading books from other areas of the world is a lot like learning how to read Shakespeare. Sorry, there's a boat going by. Sorry, Logan, you really probably are gonna have to take that out. Okay, are you sure that's not the the like the Limpkin mating call? <laughs> now I feel like Logan isn't gonna take that out because that <laughs> was a really good actually, joke. It actually wasn't that bad anyway. So all right, I didn't even well, really it was really it. loud here. Well, I'm gonna start over though. Uh, I feel like there really is no substitute for just diving in and reading. Um, it is, we're more trained by ear, uh, and by mm, practice yeah. in reading than we are by knowledge. Uh, and so I think if we're reading world literature, we just have to get maybe a really good anthology or a list of books off the internet even, um, and just start reading. And, uh, another great way to learn how to read 
books from other cultures is to begin with their mythology because uh, that kind of trains the mind in a very simple way yeah, uh, to uh, expect certain archetypes and um, certain story patterns and recurring characters. Uh, and and we're more trained by that than we know by reading, say, Greek myths or fairy tales um, or even Bible stories uh, that are, of course, the true myth, the true stories. Uh, but they still train our our imagination uh, in terms of the content of the stories and then train our tastes um, and our expectation of the story patterns as well. So those are probably my two main suggestions, but there's no shortcut to it. Just like there's no, sh- no shortcut to any kind of, you know, acquired taste. You just got to dive in and learn, learn it. Hmm. So the question there about not recognizing the, the tropes and cliches and things like that, Tim, that, that's one of those things, those, those tropes become signposts for us as readers. They become mm-hmm. like things that help us orient ourselves or, you know, the act of comparison is just sort of intuitive to people who read a lot. Um, you're like, oh, I've seen that before somewhere. Even if you don't know you're doing that, you are subconsciously making connections between everything you've ever read before as you're, as you're reading. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm overstating it a little bit, but you know what I mean. So when you don't have those signposts, Tim, do you have any any ideas there for like how you could approach that when you don't have those things to grab onto? I mean, obviously doing more, as Heidi says, there's no substitute for just doing the reading and diving in and letting it wash over you and all those sorts of things. But it can still be a little disorienting. So do you, when you, it's when you're doing something like that, do you try to identify things to grab onto or do you just bask in the confusion? Much like I, you I are in I polio right now. I bask in the confusion, much like my polio diagnosis right now. Diagnosis is a strong word, but we can go with it. It is. A, it is a strong word. More of a working theory. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah more of a yeah. working theory. Right. More of an amateur right. diagnosis. More of a WebMD diagnosis. Right. Yeah. I think the the thing that's maybe a little bit um, that takes some getting used to is if you know enough tropes from the Western canon, it's kind of like you know. Um, both the upbeat and the downbeat. You know what the sound of the upbeat is, that it's going to signal that the downbeat is coming. And when you're unfamiliar with tropes, say African tribal tropes, village tropes, then you don't know what the downbeat is. And so you kind of don't know what to expect, but it's still going to arrive. You know, it's still going to be there. It's just not going to be as expected as um, some of the tropes that Dante sets up in the divine comedy, you know, because he's Mm. playing on so much literature that came before him from the West, um, that we kind of know what the first note is going to sound like. And when we hear the first note, we know to expect that second note. So Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. Yeah. I think just like immersing yourself in it, exactly what Heidi said is the best way to go. Yeah. I mean, Sometimes you have to accept that you have polio. Yeah. Just climb into that. What's that thing that they would put kids in? An iron lung. And climb into that iron lung and just take a nap. Can you imagine? No. No, I think about, you know, I do occasionally think about that. Maybe it's because I've seen it. David's like, I imagine it quite Mm -hmm. often in my nightmares. (laughs) Um, But also, that way that I can't imagine. Yeah. 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 Like, it, like, maybe worse than the disease. 
I don't like small places. I don't, I don't have a heights fear, a fear of heights, some people call it. I do get a little <laughs> bit claustrophobic. Like if I have to go into a crawl space under a house. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Well, My theory. Strapping guy. Speaking of working theories, working hypotheses. Is this one better than the polio theory? I, I think so. it's stronger. I All really right. think it is. And then we can do a little test case right near. My okay. working hypothesis is that everyone either has a fear of heights or a fear of small, cramped uh-huh. places, but rarely both. Mm. Yeah. Heidi, what is, is it? It's one I, it's or the other for you? Definitely heights for me. You don't go for, for heights. Sure. Yeah. I'm afraid of heights. I'm one, I'm a very afraid of my children being near. Although they're, they're older mm. now, it's a little bit less. But yeah. when they were little, I was like, afraid of them being on like playground ledges that are like designed Ew, for children. Really? Yeah. You didn't like that. Might that. Be a, you might be, a, that might be more of like a parenting thing than a, it than a fear is, of heights. It is, but it's like a combined, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So like I would, I'm, when, this is going to tell you a lot about me. Um, I will, <laughs> we used to travel in England all the time. And in England, they have like a thing about putting rails on places. Like in America, everything's so protected by liability that yeah. everything's like overly safe, you know? It's not like that in Europe. Uh, it's definitely underly safe there. And uh, so I, when, <laughs> when we we're traveling, when Lucy was a newborn and Jack was almost two, and we were spending the summer in England, and I would lay in bed at night while I was there and before we got there, planning what I would do if I had the baby strapped uh, or like in the front pack and Jack somehow magically voodoo escaped himself from the stroller and fell into the water. Uh, yes, or a canal. Yep, into the water because um, we stayed on the coast and we would, you know, go down to the water and they didn't have any rails anywhere, like on the cliffs or on the docks. Well, nowhere. but the cliffs, the white cliffs of Dover with rails wouldn't be the white cliffs of Dover. Well, so. we weren't at the white cliffs of but Dover. But still, we it's like the like, principle of the, you know. This, yes. Well, I, I don't disagree with you, but with my mom brain combined with the fear of heights brain oh man i would lay in bed and be like what am i going to do if jack falls in and i've got the baby strapped to me am i going to hand my baby to a stranger and jump in and dive in and save my son or am i going to just let him drown while i protect my newborn it was i i was kind of a spaz this is such a comfort to me because i (laughs) i have just kind of like i have these scenarios no yeah i have them I will lay in bed at night and I will conjure the most, like you were at least dealing with like a, a real scenario, somewhat re- real scenario based on the environment you were in. I will go to bed at night. I swear to you, Galen makes fun of me now. And I will conjure these scenarios. The last one that I had, I'm treed with Arden, no one around, grizzly bear at the bottom of the tree. And what are you I'm gonna like, do? How am I going to solve this? If I throw her in one direction and run and descend the tree and run in the opposite direction, will the grizzly bear follow me because I'm a little bit of more like a more sizable meal? Or is he like, no, I'm into morsels. I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to take the baby's more hand. helpless. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know what you should do. You don't, I worked that you don't for like 
20 minutes. Pretty sure you yeah. don't throw your child out of a tree in either circle. Like, desperate I feel like that's times, probably... David. Desperate times. I, I mean, was treed by a grizzly. You just got to hope that grizzly bear breaks that branch, bro. I hope. Also, you got to probably like have some bear spray. There is no bear spray in this scenario. That's what made it such well, a but scenario. Now, but now you've, you've gone through the scenario in your head. So now you can be have, have bear spray on you at all times. Like, I think you like, need to get a holster with some bear spray. Like, I'm walking down to work. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Really flare gun. Flare gun? Spray. Yeah. You need, like, a David, like, like a Bowie knife. knife. And, like, yeah. everybody in the neighborhood's like, there goes Super Dad. Yeah, yeah he's got a little bit of a prepared. problem. Yeah. yeah. You probably need one of those, like, blankets, you know, that will put out fires and keep yes. you warm in a blizzard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you probably do. Yeah, and and it's, called, and it's just called being a good dad. It's just, <laughs> it's just will break you out of a dad. car if it's under water. Have you yeah. seen those? No, you need one of those in yeah, your holster. That's true. But I will say, going back to your fear of um, small spaces, I for your sake, I do hope that it that it is like scarlet fever or something. You know, instead of polio, so you don't have to do the iron lungs. Do you think this is Me how too. novelists get their ideas, though? Is those like late they, night nightmare scenarios? I think so. I, I don't know that I... I mean, I think some people get their ideas that way, but I don't know how many of them are novelists. Was, this was Stephen for, King. I was, I I was teeing you up King to does. transition back. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, and we yeah, just... We, like, chased that rabbit. Look, I, I have lots of thoughts about lying in bed, being anxious about things that don't matter. So, but, you know, let's go back to the questions. Um, okay, so here's one from Erica, uh, who says... Did we only begin to to see things fall apart in Igbo village life once the Europeans arrived, or was it already starting to happen in the first part of the novel? I think this is a great question. I think it's very important. Um, there's a there's a, a follow up here from Elizabeth who says, "Please, please answer Erica's question about whether things were falling apart in the first part of the novel." It seems to me that the book does not say that the only thing that destroyed this man in this village was colonialism, that there were internal forces as well that contributed or combined with the external forces to cr create the combustion. But I'd like to know what y'all what y'all think. So what do y'all think? How do you want to go first? I totally agree that there were internal forces uh, and external forces. Uh, and I, I think that we've talked about several of them on these podcasts that, and, and that Okonkwo was representative right of these uh, of these internal fractures uh that then as the you know the quote of course is taken um or the title is taken as a quote from the yates poem second coming uh and and yates was kind of weird like he was kind of a weird guy and his his poetry has a lot of um strange kind of esoteric ideas yeah. uh, and and in second coming he uh, posits through the poem that history is a uh essentially cycles of like ever widening circles picture like an upside down cone and a culture will come out of like spin out of the center of the cone um and in ever widening circles until it is so clumsy and unwieldy in space that it collapses inward uh and and he called that a gyre right and he says things pop, fall apart the center cannot hold uh and and i think we see kind of an exploration of that idea within this novel that there's this culture that has 
a great beauty and durability and longevity and endurance to it. But at some point, the internal forces and the external pressures are going to cause it to collapse. Uh, and I think we see that representative in Okonkwo and his community uh, throughout the story. And as he falls, so the culture falls. An observation. Is the second coming the most title-lifted short poem that we know of? Like, I came up with three off the top of my head books that rip a verse from, or a phrase from that poem and title it the book. Things Fall Apart, No Country Slashing for Old Men. Well, it's Is it No Country poem. for Old Men? Is no. that a different poem? Darn. Yeah, sadly. Second Coming but by it, Walker Percy. I think that's in the um, the prologue, one of the prologue quotes, mm-hmm. I think. Joan Didion positive. wrote a book called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Slouching so, Toward Gomorrah by Robert Bork. Remember the old Supreme Court justice nominee in the 80s? Anyway. Hmm. Um, Heidi, and then I, the, Tim, Tim's memoir of parenting, uh, Vexed to Nightmare by a Rocking Cradle. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's like I'm working on nice. it. That yeah, was that was really well done, David. <laughs> I, Thanks. I think that things were holding just fine before the Europeans showed up. I think there was conflict and Akonkwo was a violent man, but I think that the tribe, the village was, had ways of dealing with all of those things. So, um, we start with a violent act. Who who is it? Who's killed in the very beginning of the book? Um, a rival tribe kills someone's daughter, a a young virgin daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and there's a way to handle it. You either go to war or you get another virgin and like, a son from the village and it's contained and it doesn't spill out and go everywhere. I think that the story becomes an uncontained conflict. There's no means of containing the conflict once the Europeans show, because there's these two kind of like rival views of the world. So yeah, I think things don't fall apart until the Europeans show up. Okay, so here's a question uh, that says, things fall apart in the original poem and in Ashebi's reference to it in the book. The book's title seem intentionally vague since so much falls apart. So what is the center that cannot hold? Is the reference there just intentionally vague? Is it a reference to Okwankwo as the center of his family? Is it the Igbo tribal culture that cannot hold the people together in, in facing down the Europeans? Is it Umofoya as the center in the village, or is it peaceful conflict resolution itself that is the center that had held society together before, but fell apart in the face of a more powerful and duplicitous European nation, which was uh, determined to conquer and civilize what they see as an inferior race? Is it all of these things, or perhaps none of these things? Or am I reading way too much into the title and epigraph? I mean, this this is, I mean, this is a natural sort of definition type question to the previous one. How do you read that, Heidi? I mean, do you? I don't know. I I don't know that I've ever really thought about what is the center that cannot hold. I think it's a really, really good question. And I and I think that the text can support both Tim and Mai's interpretation and answer to the last question. But I think that that the 
that then the net the the correlating question is the next one. Then what is the center that cannot hold? And um, I know Yates would say there's no culture that can hold. Like there is no culture with a strong enough center that can hold. Everything will widen out um, into ever widening gyres that, that are insupportable. And then the culture will collapse and a new one will rise. Um, it, history seems to bear that out as well. Um but I think that Tim's interpretation is equally supportable by the text of this novel, uh, and in which case the the honor culture, the honor Igbo culture, will endure without some kind of devastating external force that will annihilate it with a greater power uh, than than what the culture has. Um, in which case, the 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 center that cannot hold is not the culture. It's not the Igbo culture. It is, I don't know, maybe the, maybe colonialism or progress, the idea of progress, um, which has at its center, a void. Hmm. Tim? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, Heidi's observation based on the Yeats poem that like things expand and then collapse. Yeah, that's true. I would bet that a Shebi's complaint, if he has one about Nigerian village life is that it actually is too calcified. You know, like there are certain things like, um, there's no room for that expanding. Right, right. Everything Which, is very ordered, and there are aspects about that that we would recognize as good, like the kind of like um, community patterns and family patterns, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, boy, there's a lot of things that are not going to change. The untouchables, that's never going to change in that culture unless something, some alien life force comes in and disrupts. So again, I'm just sticking with my kind of first I answer. Think, say I think Nuoheyo, Nuoheyo, though, I'm trying to say something and not getting it out in English words. Well, you're on vacation, so. Well, um, <laughs> Nuoye, Okonkwo's son. Mm, yeah, yeah. He is, he's such a brilliant addition to the story for lots of reasons, even though he plays a very small role in the narrative, it's very important because we have so many fathers and sons that are different from one another. Okonkwo is different from his own father. He despises him. He wants to transcend the legacy his father left behind. Nmoye is, um, he resents his father's overbearing authority and the expectations that are on him. He has a tenderer heart, a more gentle spirit, and there's a room for that um, within the culture. And so I still think we have various members of 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 the community that are trying to that don't quite fit but to your which you could argue well that's how the center doesn't hold but then to your point Tim still it is still those characters keep giving getting getting overridden in a sense they keep being kind of put into the community life in a way that seems like it will stabilize over time without the external force of the colonial invasion. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think maybe that 
the, the question of what is the center that cannot hold is one of the really interesting kind of follow-up contemplations to this novel. All right, let sake of time, let's move to another one here. Uh, this is a question. Um, let's see, we meet two reverends in this novel, Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith. This is from Sinisa. Um, we meet two reverends in this novel, Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith, and they're completely different characters. Mr. Brown is a reasonable man. He has a good sense of local culture, and he is ready to make compromise with village leaders. Because of his nature, he was quite successful in his mission and was able to convert a significant number of villagers. Although he's a much more likable character than the second priest, he's really just a, a paravent for the colonial forces that hid behind him. Do you see him as a positive force in this situation, or do you think his influence is more corrosive because of his good nature? It wouldn't be the first time in history that nice and naive people are used by people with completely different intentions. What would happen if Mr. Smith was there first? Would more people follow a quanquo into his rebellion? What do you think, Tim? I think more people would have followed Okonkwo and his rebellion if Mr. Smith was there first. I, I think, is Mr. Brown a, like a good character or an augur of bad things to come? I think he's both. I think we are meant to really respect him. Um, I think we are meant to see him as the best intentions uh, of Christian mission movements in its best intentions and its best articulations. The question for me is, um, can you separate that from the parent culture of like British industrial society? Uh, and I want with everything in my heart to say, yes, those two are separable, that, that they don't necessarily go together. Um, I don't know of many historical precedents, though, where they didn't go together. In other words, I want it to be true that Mr. Brown is is not a necessary, the necessary tip of the spear for like this encroaching British culture that's just going to colonize and dominate. Um, and so I hold out hope that there, that he is a good man and that his presence wasn't a necessary tip of the spear to all these bad things that happen. There are other bad things that happen due to the, due to colonialism. I think his function in the story is exactly what you just said, Tim. It's a complicating white man, honestly, because if it wasn't for him, we would have all malevolent white men. Mm -hmm. It would all and and that is not good storytelling. And we see a lot of that right now in um in in this particular cultural moment that's rightly drawing attention to the negative impact of colonialism, right? But now uh and we talked about this in the last episode, it's very widespread to conflate missionary work and colonialism in the popular imagination and to cast in um, in stories, characters like that as across the board, malevolent yeah. and, um, um, and destructive. And this book is is wise enough not to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And that even though uh, the 
influence, European influence is what collapses this culture. And it is, and and those characters that represent that um, are wrong, right? Um, and bad, like they're like bad guys. But we need somebody like, um, like Brown to, uh, to present a more benign or even benevolent um, intention and practice. Um, but it's complicated because to your point, that in a way desensitizes the tribe uh, so that then they're not prepared and have no resources to fall back on when the malevolent colonials do arrive. And and so I think he's one of the most important characters uh, because there's both a softening influence that he provides and in a true portrayal of 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 missionary work at its best, um, but also it's complicated. And I think that's what makes this book so great across the board in all of its characters. Yeah. So we talk about the idea of characters being malevolent, which brings us to a question here of, from Suzanne, which is almost like a, like a companion question, I think, to what we're talking about here with Brown and Smith, because she says, how would the book be different if Alquanqua were a better man? Why do you think Ashebi chose to center his story around such a flawed character instead of, say, Obi-Erika, the good friend, for instance? So she says maybe there's a subtle moral to be drawn in this. Um, she has a couple more questions about Okwankwo, but let's let's look at that. I mean, she she mentions that he seems to be a doomed man in a doomed culture. Um, the revolt he desires is a failure. He helps kill his adopted son, whom he loved. His death ultimately saves no one. He's not even a martyr for his people. So why does Ashebi ground the story in him? Uh, how do you go first? Tim went first Man. last time. I love this question because to me, this is much more interesting than the than the colonial question, um, which is also very interesting and very complex. But to me, this is this is one of Ashebi's great achievements in this novel is to give us a main character who is so deeply flawed, um, so representative of his culture, but also um it, he does so many things that are overtly distasteful to Western audiences. And we and as as the earlier question brought up, we don't have a context for it um, and a cultural kind of holder for it to for it to be forgivable in quotes to us. He beats his wives, he abuses his children, right? Um, and he uh, he murders his foster son even after he was given the free pass not to participate in order to show his manhood, right? Like this is, mm -hmm. he is in many ways an extremely distasteful character to Western audiences, but somehow a Chevy portrays him um, in a way that captures our imagination. And if not our sympathy, at least our acknowledgement that he is complex and and represent something that is still somehow worth saving in this culture, even though it has all of these flaws that are unflinchingly portrayed to us. And and I don't know how Ashebi does that. I think it's one of the greatest achievements of the novel, and I am so moved by it. I, I agree. I totally agree. I, I think if 
Aconquo was a good man. He wasn't violent. He loved his wives, treated his children with care and respect. Then I think this becomes a pretty flat novel pretty quickly. And it's just the story of, yeah, it becomes the story of um, European flattening indigenous cultures. And there's plenty of that. That happened plenty of times. But it doesn't lay open the complexity of a powerful culture coming into contact with a small centuries-old indigenous culture with, you know, long-running practices and and values. I just think it becomes a, a book that you can put aside and you don't keep thinking about it. And I, my suspicion is that all three of us have been thinking about this book long after we put mm-hmm. it down because mm-hmm. it's a lot more sophisticated than just bad culture mows down good culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, t- we're talking about Okwankwo, and Ryan asked the question about him, which is, why didn't more villagers want to follow Okwankwo into battle? Um, that kind of goes along with what you're saying about how complicated he is and how he's, this is not just a book of propaganda, because if it was, it would be like Spartacus or something, right? Where they all just like follow him into battle and he's... Die he's, gloriously. Yeah, exactly. Like as, as Suzanne said, he's not a martyr for his people. Um, why do you think that is? Like, is it purely a, he was, he wanted to avoid a Chevy that is wanted to avoid it being that way. And he was, he wanted to complicate things or does it seem really true to what we'd read so far about Okwankwo? Like what was the, what was the thing that was holding people, holding Okwankwo back from being the kind of leader that people would stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, you know, it's Spartacus where everyone's like, no, it's me. We're all of us become Spartacus together. That's, that's obviously not happening for Okwankwo. So what is it, in his character that keeps him from becoming that kind of leader. Tim, what do you think? I think, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't the book say that there's genuine, not just fear, but like knowledge that they're going to lose if Hmm. the tribe really tries to push back hard, it's going to be a bloodbath. Maybe I'm, I, I, Maybe I'm not recalling correctly, but I think that would be a major factor in not following a Conquo. It's not just an ideological decision. It's like, like, am I going to lose my life if I follow this guy? And I, I suspect a lot of people thought, yeah, I would. I'm not going to follow him. Hmm. Yeah, I think some of it's fear and some of it is this that sense of of the the doom is coming, right? They're, the white man is too strong for yeah. us. And uh, also, I think that there is something in Aconqua which keeps the villagers from being willing to die with him as their leader. Uh, And part of it is their cultural standards. This is a man who's been banished for violating um, one of their strongest held principles. Uh, He has uh, participated in so many uh blood so much bloody action so much violence that that they respect him as a man but don't trust him as the kind of rallying force to take a last stand uh and then on a literary level i think it's very important that nobody follows him because it makes the tragic arc of the story um I, it takes it beyond tragedy into the absurd. Like his 
His death is so meaningless from any cultural standard and, and from his own personal standard that we have to have that image of him hanging from the tree in order to really mm. uh to to really understand um the absurdity of this uh that he's that he's brought to through his own choices and also through these external forces that have rendered um that have rendered their whole way of life not meaningless but without a context to understand its own meaning anymore hmm. and and i think that that's that's the true tragedy of the story is not just unconquo's death but what it like kind of the the magnitude of what it represents within this moment of time for all of these cultures that are losing their way of life and for what Mm-hmm. Here's a here's a question from Russell. He says that we had previously mentioned the author's criticisms of Conrad, which persisted throughout Ashebi's career. And in this thread, a couple people posted some some very interesting comments on on those criticisms of Conrad that Ashebi had shared, including someone did post a link, I believe, to his essay about Conrad. So Loosely speaking, Russell says his critique boiled down to Conrad centering the narrative on Europeans and using Africans to emphasize shortcomings in those Europeans, most notably in Heart of Darkness. Ashebi sought to center the narrative on Africans, and while the Europeans do have personalities, they are mostly functional and used to emphasize personal or communal traits, good and bad ones. Does Ashebi's criticism diminish Conrad in your eyes, or is it simply necessary for both him and for African um, writers to knock Conrad off that pedestal in the same way younger African authors have criticized Ashebi for, among other things, writing in English. Tim, what do you think of this? Like, have, Do you really think someone like Conrad and a book like Heart of Darkness because of Ashebi's criticisms? I, I did. I have a kind of tortured relationship with Heart of Darkness. It's kind of like the book... I question people who don't. Who, have, who don't have a tortured relationship with it. It's yeah, a hard it's kind book of the to nature read. Of the book. It's, it's, a, it's like a very shadowy story. Um... But I do think that the complaint that the Africans in Heart of Darkness are more like, uh, I I can't remember exactly how Shebi describes them, but there's no personality anywhere among Africans in that story. They're kind of, they're treated as just kind of like, um, they're all of one fabric and yeah, there's a real, the real exciting characters are the white Europeans. I think like writing a story about white Europeans is what Conrad knew. I don't think I would complain there, but I do think the kind of um, way that he treats the Africans is all of one fabric and not really, nobody really gets much of a an investigation as to what their inner life is like. Yeah, it does resonate with me. That complaint does resonate with me. What do you think, Heidi? I totally agree. I think that, um, like, Conrad was doing something important for his time, um, and, like, he was a, he left a legacy, but this book is, I I think Ashebi is completely right, uh, and, and we need, we need books like this. Um, and 
It reminds me a little bit of when like when the novel was young and early novelists tried to write about women and they're not real. And and you're like, you're doing your best. Women aren't real. Like, well, no, the novels are. The characters aren't, right? You're like, you're doing your best. Like, good job, little guy. But like, that's not how we are. That's not, <laughs> this character is so empty. Um, that's a great so, comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think anytime an author can speak for, um, as can interpret for us and give us like an understanding of people and situations through other, through characters eyes that tell us something that we don't know about them. That's a good thing, especially when it's coming from within that. Like when, when women started writing novels, novels, women characters in novels became better. (laughs) Um, And that's true, of course, of other cultures. And we, and I like the fact that that's being attended to right now, that Shinwa Shebi began something or spoke into something, did the best at something that's like rising. And then now there's more and more um, novels like that. I like the fact that he wrote in English so that I could read it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but I also know that there's a growing body of African literature um, that's becoming more robust and complex because Shinwa Shabi did this work and I'm grateful for it. And I we just need that from all cultures. Did you just refer to Samuel Johnson as a uh, good job, little guy? Maybe. Samuel Richardson. <laughs> I mean, um, I would didn't mention any specific names. Um, Why did you pick Samuel single- Johnson, David? I met Samuel Richardson, the writer. She, she yeah. was talking about early yeah. novelists trying to write about women. Uh, so I was thinking uh, of the, uh, the novel Pamela, but I meant to say uh, Richardson, but then Johnson came out. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I knew what you meant. Yeah. yeah. And that so, novel is fine. Like it's, it's I, an early novel. I read it. It's, and it's really important in the development of the novel. And we have right. to give a lot of grace for that and have a lot of mercy on that um, and a lot of understanding when people are trying to do something that hasn't been done and they're not that good at it. Give them a break. They're the first, right? Like I'm grateful for Pamela, but it's not, it's yeah. it's not what other novels are about women. So in um in the the last the episode we did on our favorite books of the year, Sean mentioned um Joseph Epstein's The Novel Who Needs It. And that book has a lot on Conrad. And he talks about some of what was in, was um motivating Conrad as a writer. And I, I recommend you read that. Um he had a like very kind of tortured relationship with with europe and i mean he 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 hated i believe it was he hated russia because his father was thrown into a gulag type prison or something like that so he's writing from a very specific context which might be might be interesting to read about so you might want to check out that book from that perspective here's a question from hannah lay uh, it says, I found myself dissatisfied with Azinma's character conclusion. What was the significance or consequence of her trip to the cave and the summons of the god? Could her character symbolize the clan itself and a conquest desire that she slash it were more masculine? Um, how, how what do you think about this? Were you well, you talked a little bit a little bit about Azinma? How did you feel about her trip to the cave and her character conclusion and the arc and all that? I I didn't know. I didn't remember that when I when we were reading it, and I think I falsely assured um, 
our audience that it would become clear as the novel went on because I assumed it would and it w- I was wrong because it it kind of left that hanging the legacy of that anecdote for me was not about a zinma but about a conquo and that that was the moment in the novel when I saw him as a good man and maybe mm. the only moment in the novel when I saw him as good um like unequivocally wholly good in his desire to protect his wife and his daughter uh, and to stand between his wife and daughter and something that might endanger them that was accepted by the culture because he seemed willing then to intervene to rescue her if she was put in danger in that cave even if the uh even if the the culture might say that that would be out of line um and so I think that maybe that was the function of that was uh, because that's the legacy it left for me. And I think maybe that's why it got so much attention. That's the only moment in the story that kind of turned around. I'm like, oh, this man has some redeeming qualities in him as a husband and a father, as a family man, which made me like him better and be more sympathetic to him and see him as a little bit more complex than just this overbearing, cruel father and husband. Sure. Anything else, Tim? No. Uh, Tim, this is from Jennifer. Have any of you read the rest of the trilogy? I'm curious if the other two books are at the same level. Speaking to the wider context of African literature, are there other titles or authors you would recommend? I have read and loved Cry the Beloved Country. Tim, have you read the rest of this trilogy? No, I've not read the rest of the trilogy. I'm mighty tempted to. I just haven't heard (laughs) anything about the other two books in the trilogy. Have you, Heidi? No. Mm -mm. Yeah. Do you, have you read anything else, like other African writers that you think would you'd recommend? African-American, I can't think of any African authors. There's a few contemporary that I think are... Um, Wole, uh, what's his name? Wole, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, Soyinka, S-O-Y-I-N-K-A. Oh, yeah. He, I believe, won the Nobel Prize. He's from Nigeria. And then there's a, there's a writer named... Um, Chimi Manda Ngozi Adichie. Um, she's got to be in her 40s now, and she wrote a book called The Prime um, of Life. Um, yeah, she also was a half a yellow sun, something like like that. Um, do you, anybody else that you can think of, Heidi? No, I mean, honestly, I've read a lot of African poetry that I've just really loved, um, but the novels. I still have yet to dive into that really exciting, you know, growing body of literature. Oh, oh, Adichie wrote Americana too, um, which is another one that I think is 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 really well thought of. Ah, this is one of those ones I should I should have done some prep on this because there's a few that I've read, uh, like I read them in school and things like that, and I just don't remember the titles off the top of my head. Uh, maybe maybe we'll have to create a thread where uh, over on the the Substack pit chat where uh, the chat people can post some recommendations. I would like that. I'm still making my TBR for the next year, so which I guess is this year by the time this episode is posted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think this is going off on the first, I believe. Um, let's talk about this question here from Emily. We have got a couple got time for a couple more. Well, maybe one or two more. Uh, Emily says she loved the folk tales and stories told throughout the novel, especially the story of Aquafi. Uh, that especially the story that Aquefi tells Azinma about Tortoise tricking his way into joining the birds for their feast in the sky. 
do you guys have any thoughts on that specific tale and how it intersects with some of the themes or just generally on what the presence of these folk tales contributes to the novel? I think that the the folk tales contribute a storied framework, help communicate how um, that that kind of oral storytelling tradition uh, that's passed from one generation to the next that still endures in um, in tribal cultures today. And I think that's one of the most beloved um, and just like beautiful parts of that kind of oral tradition. Um, that story itself, I, it's, it's too broad to talk about African literature. Africa is a huge continent. Um, it has mm-hmm. so, so many cultures to it. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's unfair to, to, to think of just African literature. Um, but within that particular, um, I know that Nigeria is like a very rich, um, storytelling tradition. We have a collection of Nigerian folktales I used to read to my kids all the time because they have that same really fun kind of um, celebration of mischief and uh, and a kind of an, I don't know how to say this, like an ordering kind of trickery, if that makes sense, like kind of the tricky underdog animal characters that are able to triumph um, and uh and and have some fun along the way and kind of reorder society as they're doing it. Um, and there's a lot of like animal stories and a rich kind of exploration of the natural world um, that are just so much fun in in Nigerian folktales. And so uh, I think as I was reading this book, it was it was something that I recognized that's kind of cross-cultural, that idea of like storytelling um, and the stories and the myths give an imaginative and a moral framework to the next generation. And that keeps going and going and going. Um, and so that's that's something that I think all of us can, can relate to, even if we don't know the specific tales. But I would yeah. recommend getting some, some of those stories. They're really fun and widely available now. Tim, mm. any thoughts? I love how the uh, the little anecdotes and, and village stories are woven into the story. It really just, it creates a world. And that's so crucial to the first half of the book. It's like almost, I think, the central task of the first half of the book. And what a great way to, what a great way to do it. I don't have any thoughtful thoughts on how that particular story kind of ties into the overall theme. I Maybe if I put some time into it, but yeah, not right now. By the way, Africa is the fastest growing continent in the world by a pretty sizable margin now. There's the the New York yeah, Times did this. The big, youngest. The youngest, like the average age is 19. The average age in the US is 38. And they think that by 2050, one in four people on the planet will be Africans. And part of that is because their birth rate is continuing to climb while um, more westernized and wealthy uh, and more wealthy countries, our birth rates dropping pretty quickly. Which, incidentally, is something that Andrew Wilson talks about in Remaking the World. Oh, really? I brought yeah. that book with me. On Your vacation. number one book for 2023. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um I'll just, before we got to go here, I just want to say one thing about this folktales thing. I think that um, I was reading something about uh, how Achebe was trying to create um, 
like a, a new and more African English. Like a, he called it a new English. And I think that that might have something to do with why he integrates these folk tales and the various proverbs and, you know, oral, the oral tradition into the story, because I think he's trying to integrate the, those elements into this particular new English that he was trying to create. And he needed those, those stories and those proverbs and those phrases and all those kinds of things to do that. Mm -hmm. Based on some of the stuff that I was reading, I think that might play into it, Um, which is, you know, why he'd want us to read all those stories. I mean, a part of it is he just wants to make them known. Um, That is the way to get to know a culture. Mm, Read the stories. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, let's wrap it up here. Um, this is actually our last recording of 2023. Um, it's airing on New Year's Day, as I said. So um, thanks to everyone who's been listening this year, who's been leaving comments, who subscribes to Substack, who joins the chats, who talks in the Facebook group, who has been supporting us in any any number of ways. We are grateful for you. We are thankful for you. We are excited about 2024 and reading more books with you, talking with you, um, and continuing to, to, to just be a part of this community with you. So uh, thanks for 2023. Here's to 2024. Heidi, any final thoughts? No, cheers. Can't wait to read another year with y'all. Tim? I'm looking forward to it also. Thanks for all the support and eager ears, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Up next is Summer Lightning. We had an episode on the first five chapters of that. And then the second episode is going to be on um, the rest of the book. So we didn't divide it evenly because we were trying to get ahead a little bit for the holidays when we recorded that. And we really didn't have time to do all the reading just between all the busyness. So first five chapters, episode one, the rest of the book, episode two, then the Q&A, then on to the warden. So lots lots of stuff going on. You can find all of it over at closereads.substack.com. So we'll, we'll post links and all that too. So for Heidi White, who's on vacation, for uh, Tim McIntosh, who is about to enter the Iron Lung, I am David Kern. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.